Hello again, it's uh, Keith Thompson, and I want to welcome you to In Labro Episode 5, titled How I See It Now. This uh, digs a little bit farther back in, in my past, goes back about 10 years ago, and a worship service, an event that really kind of cemented and, and changed the trajectory of, of my life. Uh, gets a little more personal, and so I hope you enjoy it. And again, thank you for listening. Episode 5, How I See It Now. You know, the last 10 to 12 years have been profoundly impactful, and I feel compelled to share a few of the retrospective stories and also kind of what I'm sensing in the future. This episode is one of those looking back stories in 2010. I sensed and I experienced a really unsettling revelation, if you will. I was impressed upon by the Spirit of God, I feel, to walk away from full-time pastoring and church ministry. And startling doesn't really begin to describe the jolt that my life and ego felt at this proposition. It was really the beginning of a deconstruction in my life that at the time I didn't understand and I definitely didn't fully appreciate. The memory of a particular Sunday morning still haunts me to this day. I was standing in a worship service at Highlander Ridge Fellowship, a non-denominational church that we had started in our hometown right around 2005-2006 time frame. And I was standing next to my wife, Krista, and the worship leader was leading us in a chorus, real famous chorus back at the time, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. And I have to admit, I was caught up in the moment. I was singing loudly, hands raised in a euphoric experience, when suddenly I felt this spiritual impression deep, deep in my heart. No, you really don't want to see me. It came across as a statement, not condemnation, not judgment, just pure, unadulterated, convicting truth. And what happened next is a little bit of a blur, but parts of it stand out in stark detail. I vaguely remember getting through the service and the sermon that I preached that day, a half-hearted attempt at passion and belief. I want to apologize to anybody who remembers it. But in all honesty, I just felt spiritually naked and exposed. I couldn't wait to get out of there. I couldn't wait for it all to be over. I remember getting through the morning, going to lunch with friends, but through all of it, this uneasiness just kept growing inside of me. It's a terrible thing to be confronted by your own bullcrap, especially when you know you don't really have a defense. And in these times, I uh, often turn inward and probably not in a completely healthy way. I turmoil over it. I internalize it. Because it's not in my DNA to turn away from truth, even truth that seems ill-intended or malevolent or truth that seems to attack who I am. 
which is initially exactly what I felt. It was so intense and so awful that later that, I, that, that same day, that same Sunday, I ended up in the hospital. My blood pressure had spiked and my chest felt tight. It felt like a heart attack. It wasn't. Eventually, it was diagnosed as anxiety. I was having a panic attack. I got through a couple of days of observation and much-deserved medical lectures about living healthy and losing weight and the need to burn off stress with exercise. And all of that was definitely um, the truth. I needed all of that. But I also knew that the most pressing issue wasn't physical. It was spiritual. Once I got home, I (laughs) felt compelled and pressured to do something about this. This pressure wasn't external, it was all internal. I was putting all of it on myself. Pressure brought on by the thought that I was the spiritual leader of my, of my own home and a pastor of a group of people who needed me to get my act together and get it get together quickly. So I decided that I would declare a 40-day fast in my life. I'd previously done, done some spiritual fasts of up to 14 days, but I knew this one was going to be different, and I was determined that God was going to reveal himself come hell or high water. And I don't say this to proclaim some sort of self-righteous justification. At the time, I did what I thought to be right and accurate. My lack of insight and understanding of true spiritual fasting was incomplete and immature. I have come to know and accept that the truest and most needed form of fasting in in my life and, and in our life is the daily walk with my own cross denying the selfish and sinful desires of the flesh, the I-me-my nature that thrives on continuous indulgence and self-justification. When I proclaimed that fast so many years ago to my fellowship, it was done with ignorant humility. At the time, I would have testified under oath with my hand on the Bible that this wasn't about me, but in hindsight, while it wasn't completely about me, it was mostly about me. My heart's desire was to seek and know the truth about myself and my proper alignment with the God of truth and grace. If the spiritual impression that, had, that I'd felt on that Sunday was accurate, that in my heart of hearts I wasn't really that interested in opening the eyes of my heart to see God, then much of the ground that I was currently standing on was nothing more than shifting sand. I needed to find some solid ground once again. You know, there's a wise pastor by the name of Glenn Hobgood. He once told me this gem of spiritual counsel. He's, here's what he said. He said, people talk all the time about putting God in a box, but God can't be put in a box. We're the ones in the box. We build it and pretend God's in there with us. Guilty as charged. I had built my own little box, and I was doing my best version of make-believe spirituality, and it was way overdue for a reckoning. Now, the long and short of my 40-day sojourn and fast was that most of it, I was just hungry. I wasn't really seeing or hearing anything. Right up until the last week, I was sitting on my back porch praying and journaling, thinking about all the things that I wish I could, have, could be eating at the time. There was a small country pond in our backyard that often attracted birds of prey for breakfast, osprey mainly. This particular morning, they were very active, four birds circling and dive-bombing their catch. It was the spectacular circle of life in action, and when you're starving, you appreciate both the animalistic search for food as well as the distraction that it provides. 
As these birds performed their coordinated attack, my attention was diverted for a moment as a familiar noise broke the silence of the morning. The sound was a low buzz of an approaching small craft airplane. That mechanical buzz bothered me so terribly that day. It was an offensive intrusion into my morning commune with God and nature. How dare that guy fly over my pond and fly over my time with God? It kind of ticked me off, to be honest with you. Shows just how spiritual this fast was going. As the airplane revealed itself for a moment, it appeared, just for a moment, encircled, framed, perhaps, by the four ospreys that were flying around it. It, it was quite a picture. So much happened instantaneously. Did God speak to me? No, it was actually louder than that. It was a cascade of spiritual impressions and ideas that are still too deep for verbal articulation, but I did manage to grab my journal and jot down these words. You are the airplane, but I need you to be the osprey. The birds belong to me, and they fly, rest, eat, nest, and sleep according to the life and nature I created within them. You fly, rest, eat, nest, and sleep according to a mechanically religious nature that you've accepted as normal. It's not normal, and it's not good for you. The new nature I'm forming within you is not religious or mechanical. It's free, free to live, free to follow, free to be curious and imaginative, and ultimately free to love. If you really want to see me with the eyes of your heart, the ears of your heart, then you must leave it all behind and you must follow me. That moment began a process in my life that I'm still in to this day. At, at the time, I didn't know what it was, what to call it, or where it would lead. Eventually, it would be called in Labro. This lifelong pursuit will never be fully realized or completed. Each day, I wake up knowing that I have to choose willfully to run this transformative race of personal sanctifying truth. And each day is full of both wonder and trouble. The wonder and awe draw me more deeply into the new creation that is being formed internally. The trouble offers me the chance to participate in the suffering of the cross. The opportunity to, conf to confront uh, the ego, the pride, the self-righteousness and shame of the old nature and overcome it through the transforming mindset of crucifixion. It is arduous, it's treacherous at times, and it's full of compelling plot twists and turns. Often, it feels like death, because it is the death of a tired, self-protective, and self-absorbed old way of living that allows the resurrection of a new way to love, embrace, and discover my truest self and identity. But buyer beware, there is no resurrection without crucifixion. There is no new life without a reckoning with the old. There is no sinner's prayer that can wash away and replace the daily work and walk with our own cross. And it's heresy, I promise you, it's heresy to claim and believe that there is. And I believe that's what's harming the message of the faith in our day and age. I think it's why people can't hear it. Somewhere in our messaging, the transformational essence and ethos of the Christian faith has largely been lost in the weekly fog of religious adherence and attendance and tradition. Most Christians, most believers, don't know how to discuss their faith without relying heavily on religious description. Where they attend each week, 
what church they go to, who their pastor is, if he's a good preacher, if he's not a really good preacher, how, how the worship is, if it's contemporary or it's traditional, how they've engaged the faith and what ministries they are a part of. And please know and understand, I comprehend the full weight of what I'm saying. I have family members and friends who I know, love, and deeply respect who are, who are faithful participants in, this, in the myriad of choices of worship events and venues. Who am I to question their practices? Who am I to tell them what to do? Who am I to question the, the validity of this? I mean, should we all just stop going to church because I say so? No. No, no one should. And to be clear, I'm well aware that I'm really a nobody in this equation, and that's not some weak attempt at false humility. It's really, really not. It's simply the truth. You shouldn't listen to me. But you should listen to the voice of grace within your own life, the voice that instructs you about the path that you're walking. I mean, there's a part of my old walk that I yearn for and desire. I can't deny that. I love the organized church and my place in it. I loved preaching. I loved teaching. I loved pastoring and talking to people. But each day I grow more and more confident that whatever lies before me is so much more important than what lies behind. And so in the words of Paul, I forget what lies behind and I press on to a higher calling. And for good reason. I understand how much easier it is to talk about the weekly inspiring worship service, the passionate sermons, or the in-depth Bible studies that occupy our time and attention. It's a whole other thing to look into the, uh, the eyes of another believer, another person walking this path with you, and confess the work of the cross in your life in regards to your own lustful eyes and the lustful flesh and the boastful pride of life. Yeah, that's not a fun discussion at all. I'd much rather talk about what I learned in Sunday school last week or in Bible study this week. But we got to be careful. Since God chose to create and interact with his creation, man-made ideas and opinions and traditions have manifested just like the serpent in the garden, wrapping themselves around the hearts and minds of believers, applying dangerous and deadly pressure that convince us we don't really need to do all that cross stuff. We don't need to do that transformation stuff. We don't really need to be like God. Be God. We don't really need God because we can be like God, especially if we keep God at a manageable distance. One could say that the very first man-made worship event happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to partake of the very thing God declared unfit and unsuitable for them. As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that they should have waited for God to literally show up before they committed to their plan. Because the only antidote to the sinful flesh that keeps us from fulfilling the law of God, which is to love, is the painful, deliberate, and daily process of suffering with our own cross. Each day we choose to embrace the work, we participate in the process and the instruction of grace. Titus 2, 11-14 puts it this way, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's an inextricable link between grace and instruction that's made fairly obvious in this passage, but I want to dwell on it for just a few moments. Because I think the grace of God is maybe the least understood and the most abused concept in Christianity. 
it's kind of used as a catch-all covering or hall pass for our sinful nature. You know, nobody's perfect, so thank goodness for the grace of God. But when you dig deeply into this foundational pillar of the faith, you realize quickly that this view of grace cheapens and jeopardizes the possibility of spiritual formation and transformation altogether. To illustrate the deepest realities of God's grace, I'd like to try and illustrate what I'm talking about by using, well, the simple game of baseball. I know my buddy Vinny Coconana is going to get a kick out of this. Imagine, if you would, that you've never played or watched a game of baseball. The game, of, the game has never been explained, and the rules are completely beyond your understanding. Nevertheless, you have a good friend who wants you to come and play a game with them. They give you a bat, they give you a glove, they give you a ball, and when you get to the park and you see all the friends and, and on the field, they look at you and they say, go play baseball and make sure you have fun, play fairly and with a good attitude. And imagine yourself standing there with the question on your face that you're about to ask, how do I play this game? What are the rules? You might think all of these things and say to your friend, hey, thanks for the equipment, but what am I supposed to do with this stuff? Do I use the bat to hit the ball, or do I use it to hit the first baseman? You would hope that someone would soon appear and explain the basic concepts of how to play. Without understanding the basic rules, a game would quickly get either incredibly boring or extremely chaotic, depending on the character and nature of the participants. As Titus explains, grace has appeared, and it's instructing us how to live. It's constantly and actively explaining the rules for personal transformation and sanctification. Grace is the instruction on how to become the people of God. Grace is not a wink and a nod from God that our sin and rebellion isn't really that big a deal, that our life is just kind of on cruise control until, well, you know, we die and go to heaven. Our lives are a huge deal to God. They're wrapped up in God's plan and God's purpose. And God's grace teaches us how to overcome all of the obstacles that are in our way of being the people that he knows that we can be. Romans 12, 2 through 3, which we've read before, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace of the instruction given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It's clear to me, at least, that in order to move forward in our spiritual transformation, we need a grace filled with instruction on how to change and transform our minds. Because I don't know about you, but I'm terribly fixated with the idea that I don't need to change or transform God's grace accepts me just the way I am. He loves me just the way I am. That the work of the cross of the, of the cross of Jesus is some heavenly payoff that, that erases all of my sin and shame so that I can continue to live life here without worrying about what's, what's to come. Yeah, uh, that's not exactly what the scriptures say. Though I didn't know it at the time, understanding grace was really at the heart of my 40-day fast. It was at the heart of that impression that I had on that Sunday morning. It was central to the answer to my spiritual impression that I wasn't really interested in seeing God at all. The truth was that I wanted to see the God who agreed with me, protected me, 
the God who would bail me out of tough situations, but who would also turn a blind eye to my sin, my self-centeredness, and my shortcomings. I wanted a God who loved me unconditionally, but not a God who wanted to change me. I wanted a God that was great and mighty and powerful, but who wouldn't come looking for me in the secret shame and sin of my own garden bushes. But God is the great I am, the great God of the present, and the great redeemer and provider of the potential of every moment and every breath. As I got closer to his spirit, his instruction, and his truth, I knew that I was up against much more than I had bargained for. In fact, I still know I'm way overmatched in this struggle in this wrestling match. Of all the things that were painstakingly revealed during this time and since, the most surprising and difficult for me was that I was to end my career as a pastor. Again, it's hard to describe the feeling of having your heart ripped out and knowing it to be the right thing, but that is the best, though harshest, description I can come up with. Because the work of the cross is a spiritual work that encompasses your entire life, the entire set and subset of your life. As a statement of faith and belief, the work of the Holy Spirit is to be seen as the supreme navigator of all of the realms of your life. Nothing is exempt. Nothing is left behind except that which we willingly choose to escape the torture, humiliation, and deliberation of the Spirit-directed work of our own cross. It's an interesting paradox that the more we choose to take our rebellious lives and nature into the spiritual work of the cross, the more easily we offer ourselves to this act of worship. The scriptures remind us that we are a living sacrifice and that this living, breathing, daily observance is meant to become a spiritual, not primarily physical, act of worship. I believe this is why God needed and required me to break away from the religious rut that I was in. He wanted me to experience the faith in an altogether different way out in the wilderness of the world. All of the physical symbols, the titles, the traditions, the observances had become a trap for me. They were alluring, and they were seductive to my flesh. They had become the replacement rituals for real, authentic transformation and change. And I know this is a hard place for most believers to reconcile. Because the regular weekly religious observance that is part of many believers' practice of faith is a sacred event that creates a demonstrative opportunity to proclaim the truth, the truth of their salvation, the truth of their redemption, And it's ingrained into us to believe that this weekly ritual is vital and necessary to our ability to mature and grow in the faith. And indeed, it very well could be a conduit to true growth and development if, and only if, it's seen for what it really is. It's a physical metaphor for a spiritual truth. And this shouldn't come to us as a surprise The scriptures are full of metaphors and parables that form a hyperlinked text pointing to the same conclusion. We aren't yet what we could be, but we can't become until we're ready to let go of our very limited capacities and die. Die to the old corrupted nature of self-identity. Each and every scriptural story is related to God's transformative power to create and man's destructive nature to corrupt. Even at our best, we're simply not able to take our knowledge singularly or collectively and outmaneuver or defeat our own tendencies to betray, lie, cheat, lust, destroy, and kill. Which brings me back to the point of the inherent dangers of the religious spirit and religious observance. The truth is that they are powerful knockoffs that resemble the real thing. They beg, plead, and bargain for our time and attention, all the while diverting us from the true goal and prize. They are the equivalent of the golden calf that we talked about last week. 
while Moses is in Sinai receiving the law of love that teaches and transforms us to be people of mutual benefit and compassion, something happens down in the camp. The people felt abandoned, betrayed, and lost, so of course they felt they had to do something to fix it. The urge to worship God became so great because they wanted God to come in and tell them what to do. So the golden calf is formed. It's formed from man's own ideology, nature, knowledge, and desire. As a physical representation, it's formed from the golden earrings that adorn the ears of the wives and children of the nation of Israel. They literally sacrifice their ears, the ability to hear the internal voice of God, because of fear and complaint over their external circumstances. It's important to note that the people who demanded the calf and the high priest who fashioned it did it as a testimony unto the Lord who brought the people out of Egypt. They didn't create a new or alternative God to worship, and they didn't resurrect Egyptian gods to celebrate. Everything they did was to honor and worship the one true God of scriptures who had delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. They declared a feast and a celebration to honor him. It included singing and dancing. There's no doubt in my mind that they thought that what they were doing was sincere and right. I'm hoping you can pick up on the parallels, but if not, let me attempt to connect some of the dots. I have no doubt that the people of Israel were, at that time, experiencing real doubt and real suffering, just like you and I experience real doubt and real suffering. Their feelings of betrayal and abandonment were real and overwhelming, just like we experience those same things. But the call of the faithful is not, to, not just to be faithful when everything is clear and the map to the treasure is marked with a gigantic, big, obvious X. The call is to be faithful in season and out. But as they sat and listened in their collective and personal wilderness, the voice of the serpent began to manifest the fear and doubt and shame through grumbling, murmuring, and complaint. And this eventually becomes harder and harder to ignore. It always does. The voice becomes louder. The arguments become more complex and compelling. And it's not like they didn't have a legitimate concern. What, in fact, would happen to them if Moses didn't come back? How long were they supposed to wait? How would they survive? Eventually, as always, complaining leads to genuine and sincere fear. And it all goes back to that original thought and question over the original sin back in the Garden of Eden. Why and what is God holding out on us? Why doesn't he want us to eat and partake of the forbidden fruit? He says it will kill you, but is that really the truth? Maybe you'll die if you don't eat it. Maybe God just doesn't want you to be like him. So much like Adam and Eve, who, at the for, who ate the forbidden fruit, the Israelites declare a feast of their own and partake of their uh, man-made understanding and revelation. They take a big giant bite of the golden calf. One should wonder what would have happened had Adam and Eve, as well as the Israelites, had chosen to wait. Wait for God and wait for Moses to discuss the rules with the one who had made the rules. But they didn't. Instead, their suffering led to impatience and the human compulsion that doing something is always better than doing nothing. I believe in both cases that their hearts were sincere about honoring God. But faithfulness isn't measured in sincerity. It's measured in obedience. 
You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Their importance with the process, or excuse me, their impatience with the process of revelation and, and truth was their undoing. You know, as I mentioned last week, we should be called human doings, not human beings, because we're obsessed with doing something, especially in the face of uncertainty and doubt. There must be something we can do to get the attention of a God that we so richly need and deserve. But here's the challenge. To develop the spiritual fruit of patience, we have to offer ourselves to the suffering of uncertainty and doubt, abandoning the tendency to fill in when God seems distant or silent because he's never really distant or silent. His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He is in us. He's that close. His word is written in our hearts as well as in a book. It's implanted in us. Those truths alone should sustain us through any drought or storm. And yet still, we simply can't resist thinking more is needed, that something external must be required in order to bring God closer. So we devise, imagine, and might I also go as far to say scheme. What could God be wanting from us or expecting us to do? And to be clear, God has revealed exactly what he's looking for in us, a humble and a contrite heart, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, a heart of good soil that can receive the implanted word, a heart that can produce and bear the spiritual fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know about you, there's an unrest in most of our hearts that can't be still and know that God is in control and has good intentions towards us with every circumstance we find ourselves in. Which is the daily spiritual work of the cross that each of us are striving and contending with, even if we can't acknowledge or articulate it. Beloved, it is happening in us, to us, and all around us every day. We simply need eyes to see and ears to hear. Without this awareness, we begin grasping and devising ways to get God's attention, to show him how devoted we are and how committed we are to his agenda in this world, that we're on his side and we're here to help him right all the wrongs of the world. Through the holy partnership of us and God, amazing signs and wonders are going to take place all around us. And of course, it often involves things that seem sacrificial without having any real basis of sacrifice, which is right I understand why religious observance and attendance and practice is so attractive because it looks like sacrifice without being anywhere in the ballpark of of the true sacrifice that is required. God isn't at all interested in our weekly worship attempts if we refuse him the daily worship sacrifices of our own lives. It turns out that God doesn't need us to be on his side. He just needs us to be on our cross. So how do I see it now? Well, much more clearly, much more deliberately than I did 10 or 12 years ago. I'm no longer trying to be a holy airplane flying around with a message tale that says Jesus saves. I'm embracing the fact that God wants me to be an osprey floating on the air of God's graceful instruction with the eyes of my heart wide open, looking for people to love, conversations to elevate, and places to leave my mark. And with that, I'm going to have to wrap up today's episode. I think we've gone probably a little long. Again, I do thank you for your time, and I thank you for your patience.
I'm humbled that you would take time to listen to this episode of Enlabero.